Hey guys, my name is Mavi and I've spent the last 14 years in the plastic surgery and beauty industry, working alongside top board certified plastic surgeons. In that time, I've helped thousands of women in their surgical journey. My passion to educate and help women feel empowered is what led to what we now know as the Big Butts No Lies podcast. Join in on the fun as I talk to plastic surgery experts, friends, and real life patients about all things plastic surgery. Should be fun. Hey guys, do I have the episode for you today? We've talked about it a few times before, but this time we're really going to deep dive and unpack and just get into such a juicy topic for me and for everybody I talk to about it. They are just as fired up and yes, we need to talk about these things. And today I'm super excited to empower a female plastic surgeon Dr. Megan Drevis-Scratch. She is a Seattle-based board-certified plastic surgeon. And I'm so excited to have you on today, Dr. Megan. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much. I love your show. I love what you're doing. And I love your story. So I'm super excited to unpack a couple of huge topics that we have. (laughs) I know. Let me tell you guys, we had this, we had a little pre-chat And she was getting into it. I was like, hold on, we have to pause. This is too good for me not to be recording this. And let me tell you how we even just started onto the topic. I was mentioning to her that I see and I get some before and after pictures sent to me about what people are looking for. And I received a picture where it was an on-table result. It was an out-of-the-country before and after And they made her waist very, very, very small. And they gave her these really, really wide, big hips. And this girl was is young. She's you can tell she's young by her skin. She's probably in her early 20s. And my first thought is, oh, my gosh, like what is what's this going to look like once she goes through pregnancy, weight gain, weight, like all these fluctuations and later on into her 40s? What is this going to look like then? And that's just something that I keep thinking about. We need to talk about these things. And I'm so lucky to have Dr. Megan on. And the first thing we're going to talk about is realistic expectations, the longevity of these plastic surgery procedures that we're having, and how social media clouds the idea of what we should look like after surgery, how it's giving us this unrealistic expectation of what plastic surgery can do for us. And it's just a juicy topic to unravel. Dr. Megan, jump in. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I guess, you know, starting with sort of the realistic expectations. I mean, setting realistic expectations is really one of the biggest foundations in establishing a good result or good relationship rather and a good result with a patient. You know, a lot of times when patients come in for consultations, especially with like a breast consultation, you know, we'll ask them for wish pics. And, you know, I mean, with so much information out there, there's pictures everywhere, all over social media, a lot of patients come in and they already have like 20 pictures that they've saved on their phone. So that's, you know, kind of a good way to start the conversation as to, you know, kind of what they're looking for. There is so much to think about in terms of whether or not something is realistic for a patient. And part of that's going to be anatomy, you know, and I think that sometimes patients don't always understand that a lot of times we are making decisions in terms of what the patient's pre-existing anatomy is. 
So, you know, for example, with breasts in terms of picking the right implant and size and all of that kind of stuff, it's really about a whole bunch of different dimensions that the patient has on the chest. So, and it's not so simple. I mean, I feel like now people are a little bit more educated and they're like, oh, you know, height and weight and all of those things matter. And it's like, yes, but also, you know, what is your wall circumference? What is the width of each breast on your chest wall? Because those can vary from patient to patient. So anatomy is key. And then I think the other thing for setting realistic expectations is what is the patient's lifestyle like? And I think this this is something that they don't always think about. So I think a good example of this is, you know, having somebody come in for a breast augmentation consultation and they are super fit. They run all the time. They've got a couple kids at home that they're running after. And aesthetically, what they want is something much larger than is realistically going to fit into their lifestyle. And, you know, I think it's important for me as their surgeon, which also helps to be a woman (laughs) when we're talking about a lot of this stuff, to really point that out. Like, hey, by the way, like, you know, there's a weight to these implants. And with that weight comes gravity. And gravity is going to be something that's going to change their results over time. So really factoring all of that into their decision making. Right. Y'all know I am a total female empowerment. I love female plastic surgeons. And this is one of those reasons why. Because they are, they have our body parts. They know what's to come or they've already experienced it or they've seen it. And they're thinking about, hey, what is this going to look like after or during their normal day-to-day life? Are these going to be in the way? And this is something I think that's really important that we should talk about more. And I think this gets lost when you travel for surgery. Y'all know I don't really like y'all traveling for surgery. I would rather you stay home, stay close to like where you live so you're not traveling right after surgery. But I know. Sometimes the results you're looking for can't be delivered by a surgeon in your area. Okay, I understand. (laughs) Okay, so with Dr. Megan being a female, she understands pregnancy and the havoc that it wrecks on us during pregnancy and before and after. So what are some things that our young girls should be considering before they have plastic surgery? Yeah, I mean, I think this, this is a little bit tricky. Because, you know, I think that one of the things that I'm seeing more and more is patients coming in younger and younger for procedures. And it's not necessarily a bad thing at all. I think the risk that you run when you have surgery done, I mean, not really surgery to the face, but surgery, breast and body before you have kids is that you're going to have to have a revision afterwards. So that's really kind of the trade-off that patients have to consider. Now, sometimes it makes sense for them to just have surgery before they have kids because the benefits that they're going to get from that surgical procedure, you know, in terms of their body image and their self-confidence and all of those things far outweigh in their mind the risk of having to have a revision down the road. So it's not always a deterrent or 
something that you you have to wait until you're done having kids before you you know have surgery. It's just something that patients have to consider and have to be fully educated on before they go into it. I can speak from personal experience on that specific topic because I worked in plastics for 10 years before I had anything done. And it was because my first plastic surgeon that I worked for, I had a very large breast and I wanted to get a breast reduction. And he persuaded me to wait until after I had my kids to then go in and do a breast reduction. And I did wait and I waited until I had both of my kids. You know, I'm done closing shop. (laughs) Let's get this back in shape. And Sometimes I'm like, man, I wish I had done it before. But Mm -hmm. mainly, I think I'm glad I waited. I'm glad I waited until I was done because now it was one and done. I did it, had my kids. Now I'm back to normal. Mm -hmm. So I think it's something that sometimes, maybe a year ago, I was like, man, I should have done this when I was in my early 20s. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially for something like a breast reduction. So, you know, but every patient's journey is different. Like I said, it's really just my job to point out all of these things that they need to be thinking about so that ultimately they can come up with a decision that works best for them. Right. In terms of pregnancy changes, I mean, oh my gosh. It's like, it's such a question mark. And so, you know, patients will ask, you know, what what are my results going to look like after I have kids? And the realistic answer is I have absolutely no idea. You know, like I know that if you would have asked me what my pregnancy changes would have been beforehand, I would have never, I just never anticipated exactly how my baby grew. I'm very short and I have a very short torso, like no room in my torso at all. So if you would have asked me before I got pregnant, like how I was going to look, I would say, oh my gosh, I'm going to be one of those like tiny people with a belly that just sticks out. Like baby's going to grow out. And then I'm definitely going to need to tummy tuck later because it's going to stretch all that skin out. And what my kid actually did was she grew up into my rib cage. Oh my God. Uh, so she saved yeah. it. <laughs> well, she saved my abdomen, but my rib cage permanently expanded. So I have a whole bunch of dresses that I like will never be able to wear again. And there's no surgery to fix that, you know, or some people just you get an expansion of your hip bones and, you know, it's going to permanently change your shape. So there's, there's things that can be corrected with surgery. There's things that can't be corrected with surgery. And you can just never really predict how your body's going to change or if it's going to change at all. Like my breast didn't really change at all after having a kid. And so, you know, it's just, it, it, it's an impossible question to answer. I think it's just something that patients need to be considering. Definitely considering. And I'm referring more, not so much in the breast, but for fat transfers, when they get their BBLs and they're going extra large on the BBL and they haven't had any kids yet. And it's mainly because I've seen it. I've seen it in Mm. myself with my weight fluctuations and my butt get to a point where I'm like, oh, my God, I need to lose weight because my butt's getting too, too big and I don't like Mm -hmm. it. And I've seen it in patients who have had it, who have experienced, you know, getting surgery and then getting pregnant and they're unhappy with how they look. They wish they had gone smaller or they wish they had waited until after they had a baby so that they could just be the one and done. So these are things that I'm, I've seen and I want our listeners to think about when they're going to their consultation and they're already thinking about round two and they haven't healed from round one yet. 
Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things with that. I mean, first and foremost, you know, with liposuction and with fat grafting, you know, there's all these rumors that are swirled around. You know, can I, I've heard that I can't gain weight in the same spot if I gain weight or, you know, going to go to a different place or whatever. I mean, basically, when you do liposuction, you permanently remove those fat cells. They're not going to grow back. But the fat cells that you have can get bigger. So that's number one. When you put fat into certain places, we don't really know how it's necessarily going to respond. So for example, you would think anecdotally, okay, well, let's say no matter if I get or lose weight, I never get rid of the fat in my abdomen. So if I take that fat that seems non-responsive to weight changes and I put it in my butt, does that mean that that fat is non-responsive to weight changes as well? And the reality is, is that we just don't have a good answer for that. Fat is much more complicated than I think that patients really realize. And it is very much influenced by hormones. And so kind of getting back to that changes in you know fat grafting and liposuction over time, it's much more complicated when you're a female because our hormones are changing pretty much on a 30-day cycle every single month. And then those hormones are obviously incredibly extreme when we have pregnancy and the postpartum period. So, you know, it, it's sort of like anything is kind of up for grabs in terms of how your your results can change over time. But I think that it's definitely something you should be thinking about. And you know, you were you were giving the example of, you know, kind of this extreme BBL look that patients are so often seeking. And I think that bigger kind of not concern, but you know, issue to think about is like, you should always be cautious when you are seeking a really extreme result. You know, the extreme results, you just, you know, I mean, there's just, there's so much to unpack with that because it's, you know, things are very trendy right now and it, it may not always be like that. And so you really have to think about how, how quickly people decided that this was the aesthetic ideal, you know, it's really only been in the last couple of years and how quickly that can change. And definitely, I believe in the 90s, it was super thin and big breasts, big. Yeah. So I have told you guys on the this show before, don't just follow the trend. Like if your body, if you have a tummy tuck and it gives you, you want an hourglass shape and you want, you know, a hourglass figure, I understand and go for it, but don't do these super exaggerated result. This expect these exaggerated results all the time from anybody that you go to, you know, because they're not realistic. Yeah. I mean, I think things, the, the two goals that will never ever fall off trend or out of style is if you're using plastic surgery to correct for something, i.e. in the example of like a mommy makeover, you know, you're restoring things to the way that they were. Or if you're just enhancing your natural features, like those are never, those results are never going to go out of style. It's really when you're trying to fundamentally change something that you just always have to worry about. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing. It's just something that you want to consider a little bit more, I think. Just think about, and you know, honestly, it's not that often that I'm hearing, you know, that they want these very exaggerated results. Most of the women that I talk to, and, and I'm sure Dr. Megan, Actually, I would like to know 
in your practice what you're seeing? Because what I'm hearing is I want to look like me, but better. I want my stomach to be flat or I want a little bit in my hip. You know, I want to look like myself. I don't want to look like I had a lot of work done. I just want to look more like I did when I was younger. That's it. Is that what you're hearing or what do you hear? Well, I mean, I think it's a little bit like you, the patients I think that seek me out aren't seeking me out for extreme results. So, you know, in my old practice, I think I got a little bit more of that and I had to manage expectations more. But the patients that come to me now are saying exactly what you were just saying. And those are the patients that I really want to treat because I'm just not that surgeon that you want to come to if you want that crazy snatched waist and huge hips. But if you want, you know, a natural look with maybe some fat grafting to your hip dips or, you know, giving you a little bit of an extra curve, then yeah, I'm the surgeon for you. So, you know, most of my patients, I guess, point being do want really natural results, but I think it's a little self-selective, you know. I love that because, you know, I tell you guys, find a surgeon who matches your aesthetic. Finding your surgeon is very important because you're finding somebody who you're going to trust and you have to trust their judgment that they're going to give you a result that you like. So if you go to a, if you want a conservative or a more natural result, definitely you want to look for a surgeon like Dr. Megan, who that's what she aims for. And that's what her, you know, she loves to do. If you want a more exaggerated result, then you have to seek out a surgeon who gives more exaggerated results. Like I've told you guys a few times, you kind of have your super dramatic, extravagant results. You have your kind of middle, kind of play in the middle, the younger crowd. They'll do a little bit of the fat grafting. They'll, you know, give you some back lipo to accentuate your butt, but they won't go too crazy with your butt. And then you have Mm -hmm. your conservatives who probably won't even do fat grafting. They are like, I don't do fat grafting. I... You know, I specialize in uh, these other things or they don't they don't believe in it or they don't like it. And that's okay. And so you have to find a surgeon that matches your aesthetic because that's how a better way of managing your expectations. Because if you go to a surgeon who that is not the look that they deliver and you're expecting that, you're going to be very disappointed when you don't get it. I think you have to really, as a patient, take a step back and just remember that you're also a consumer and to look at this marketplace that we've created for plastic surgery in the world of social media. Because, you know, even the surgeons that are producing these quote unquote extreme results, I mean, you have to look at how they're presenting their social media because as a surgeon, I feel like it's super transparent. You know, we were talking in sort of our pre-chat about like a really extreme BBL result on the table. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like flag number one. People are always going to show these quote unquote extreme results on the table. And you have to ask yourself why. (laughs) You know, (laughs) that's the first question, right? And the answer to that is because first of all, they have a ton of swelling. So their results are going to be exaggerated. They have put all the fat in, but you haven't had any fat reabsorption which, I mean, we can talk about because it can be upwards of 50% of the fat that you transfer can be lost. So none of that has come into play. And then if you look at the positioning of the patient on the table, a lot of times they will flex the surgical bed, which makes everybody's waist look smaller. Mm -hmm. So it's like just the pictures themselves and the way that they're doing it just produces 
unrealistic expectations. And then the other thing that drives me absolutely nuts is everybody in their after pictures, they all wear thongs, they're all high-waisted thongs, and they're all standing in a position where they're leaning a little bit forward everybody's waist is going to look smaller. And there's actually... I have to give a shout out to... I'm sure you're familiar with her, Dr. Sheila Nazarian. Yes. And she had... I've been like watching this social media thing and she totally beat me to it. But she basically showed an amazing Instagram post of somebody standing or sitting, I guess, in kind of the pose that I was just talking about and then had them relax to show what they act like. Oh, I'm going to share so, that. I'm going to find it and share it because I think it's it very important. It. It's so good. And you just, I mean, it's like, once again, you have to just be a smart consumer. And I hate to, it's like goes against everything that I feel about medicine. But I mean, at the end of the day, like, like patients are consumers and we've created this marketplace. And so you just really have to be a smart consumer. Absolutely. That's why we're here. That's we're yeah. trying. we're trying to, because the thing is, they don't know that they don't know. I know that's the that's the part that it's like they don't even know what to look for. So that's why they have us. And she told y'all some tricks when you're looking at before and after pictures. Look at the table, see if it's flexed. And these before and after pictures on the table. I mean, we really should wait if a surgeon's res- his whole or her whole Instagram is before and after pictures, but the res- the end result is on the table. I would want to see some like three month out post-op pictures. Oh, not even three months. I would say if they have good results at a year, then, you know, because the the trickiest part of fat grafting is fat retention. And it is so much more complicated than I think patients understand. Basically, you know, fat grafting is like a transplant. And every single fat cell that you put in somebody has to develop its own blood supply. And fat retention, you know, I mean, it's the numbers are all over the board depending on who you ask. But I would say if somebody's being ethical and honest, they're going to tell you anywhere from 50 to maybe 70%. So, you know, and it, it has everything to do with the harvesting technique. So, you know, how we get the fat the suction power that we use during harvesting, the cannulas that we're using, then there's kind of the separation of the fat. There's a million different methods for how to separate the fat. But the idea is that you don't want to damage the fat cells. And then the other part of fat grafting is how we put the fat back in. When you see these you know, results on the table where people have basically just dumped a whole bunch of fat into somebody's backside, like that is not going to live. You know, there's so you've created a, such a high pressure environment by just basically overstuffing a compartment that there's the viability of those fat cells is like minimal. And that's why it's just really important to see kind of long-term results. I think when you see before and afters, you know, down the road, another thing that patients need to realize that isn't always kind of advertised is people will get multiple rounds of fat grafting Mm -hmm. to get extreme results. Because what you're going to do is as a surgeon, which we do with fat grafting, we're going to put more fat in anticipating that we're going to have that fat loss. And then you may need to... So there's kind of like a high and then there's a low. 
And then you may need to go back in to, you know, kind of overcompensate and then have it come back down again. So, you know, it's just really important for people to kind of keep that in mind and to understand it's not an exact science. And like I said, those numbers, I think conservatively 50 to 70%, maybe some people will say 80% retention. That basically means the flip of that, that you have anywhere from, you know, 20 to 50% of the fat that is put in that will just automatically be lost. So you can't possibly expect to have the results that you have on the table long term. It's just not possible. We're not there yet. Someday we'll probably get there, but right now we're not. That's right. I want to pull up this post Let's because talk I think about it's toxic super masculinity. Oh, oh. I, I guess we heard it <laughs> from Dr. K. So she's on Instagram as Beauty by Dr. K. And she touched on something that I, I want to talk to you, Dr. Megan, about and see yeah. what your opinion is. So I know from, you know, being in the field that for a long time before and after pictures at meetings, like I remember hearing, you know, doctors that I worked for that were going to be presenting. And when we were taking the before pictures and the after pictures and they would coach us on exactly how they needed to be, you know, from this angle, this angle, no shadowing, like it has to be very perfect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was very important, the before and after pictures. So now that we're in this age of social media and we're seeing before and after pictures, collages of like a before and an after and it's they're clothed and they're not clothed or they're in a bikini. You know, I feel like a lot of that has been lost. Yeah. Are the pictures I haven't I haven't been to a meeting in like two, three years. So are the pictures changing even at the meetings? I don't think so. Not at the meetings, because, you know, irrespective of whatever, you know, I'll use my own practice as an example, irrespective of whatever I'm putting on social media, every patient that comes in here gets, you know, standard before and afters, exactly what you're talking about. We do the same poses. We try to recreate it so that at the very least, I can, I have great references for the patients if they ever want their before and afters. I could use them in meetings if, you know, I was giving a talk and they allowed me to use their photo. But also, you know, one of the things that you're constantly doing as a surgeon is you're evaluating your own work, you know, like, where could I have made this better? I'm not super happy with this. You know, what am I unhappy with? Happy change things next time. So, you know, every patient in my practice and in most of the surgeon's practices that I know still do very traditional before and afters. And when you do go to meetings, those are usually the ones that you see. Do you think there's a way that we could be like pushing more for these like more standardized before and after pictures? I mean, it's kind of it's hard because that's just not the culture that we're in. Mm. So, for example, the least responsive posts that I put on social media are before and after results that I think are killer. So we're the problem. <laughs> I, I think it's just, it's as society, like we want video, right? right? So, I mean, now with Instagram Reels, you you know, and TikTok, you can take a static picture and you can make a little video out of it. It's just, it's hard because that's just not the market. Like I said, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've like had a patient come back. I'm super hyped. I think that, you know, they just have this amazing result and I can't wait to show it. And it's like the most poorly performing post that I've had that entire month. Man, (laughs) you're like, wah, wah, wah. This was a home run, you guys. How'd y'all miss it? (laughs) I know, but at least it's there. And, you know, I think the people that, that are really looking for something, I think that it will be helpful for them in the long run to have it. 
but that's just kind of the market that we're in. I'm I'm trying yeah. to kind of think like I'm I'm really torn because I'm I do enjoy the before and after pictures where the after they're already like out living their life, enjoying themselves. I do enjoy that part because I feel like it gives prospective patients hope almost like, hey, I could possibly be doing that too. You know, if I have the surgery that I'm, I want to have, if I gain my confidence back. So I do like that. But at the same time, I feel like there's so much use of filter on some of these pictures, especially on before and afters like of 360 lipo BBLs and they're using filters and you can't really see everything. And one of those things that I you can't really see with those filters is the aggressive lipo marks and lipo cannula marks or the hemocytorin staining from, you know, the aggressive lipo that they had. You can't see that because it's filtered and it, you know, now a prospective patient doesn't know that those types of things could happen because they're looking at this before and after video of a girl with the filter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now there are pretty strict kind of ethical guidelines from, you know, the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. So, you know, if you, if your colleagues that you're doctoring photos and editing things, I mean, you can get flagged and lose your membership. So, you know, but the problem is that patients don't realize is there's a ton of people who aren't plastic surgeons doing plastic surgery. So, Say it again. <laughs> uh, that's a whole nother can of worms, right? Yeah. But I mean, we hold ourselves to really high ethical standards. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not outliers. But, you know, not every board does that. So, yeah. And I think that's a topic that we've touched on a few times through previous episodes about why I am very adamant that you guys need to be looking for a board certified plastic surgeon, period. No ifs, ands or buts like board certified plastic surgeon to be doing your plastic surgery. Yeah. I Patients just don't realize that it is not regulated. I think that patients just make the assumption that, you know, some overarching body in the United States is going to regulate what procedures a specific doctor can do or, you know, what treatment scope a specific doctor can do depending on what they did their residency in. And patients just don't understand that it's not regulated. And there's a lot of push to not regulate it because people are making a lot of money off of it. And what's really unfortunate is, so my husband's a lawyer. And when we first got together, you know, I was trying to explain this to him and his mind was blown because he's like, oh, like what? Like there's no regulation. Like how do people not know what happens? You know, because in his mind, a lot of regulations come about when, you know, with lawsuits, you know, for better or for worse. But if you, let's say, have somebody who's un- qualified to do a procedure and they botch a patient and the patient goes back and sues them, then you have enough of that and you're going to start pushing some regulation. But the problem is, is that going back and suing that surgeon is just not usually the resources that a patient has. A lot of times they're going to these people who aren't necessarily qualified to do these procedures because they're offering lower prices. So they're already coming in, you know, price driven and cost driven. And so a lot of times when you have patients who have botched surgeries, they just end up in somebody else's office. That's absolutely true. I 
had not thought about that, but you're definitely right about they're already looking for a lower price and that's how they end up in these facilities. Right. And I had not thought about that. You're absolutely right. Yeah. That's why we're not getting regulations. mm -hmm, Because it's really going to have to come from patients and, you know, and people are starting to do it. You know, I think in the state of California, it's been a while since I kind of visited it, but say that a couple years ago, they passed regulations that said that you couldn't call yourself, you couldn't, if you were a cosmetic surgeon, you couldn't call yourself board certified. I believe that is the case. I don't want to throw something out there that's not accurate. I at least knew that it was up for debate. And that's definitely a start, but, you know, it's definitely not the end goal. Not the end goal, I think. But that stuff is not regulated. But let's talk about how regulated plastic surgery is. Like those, y'all are held, you know, at a very high standard. And oh, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, to sit for my boards, I had to Google myself and submit everything that came up. Like, I'm not even kidding you. I had to print everything up. Any printed advertisement, my social media accounts, everything. And they looked through all of that to make sure that I'm not, you know, telling them one thing and then presenting myself in a different way. You know, they'll go to your website, they'll look at your before and afters, like, is this doctored, you know, and even still, I mean, the board certification process, I'm in year three. And a couple times this year, there's been stuff that I had to submit, I had to submit my website again, and I believe my social media account so that they could review it. And then I also had to submit 10 cases in detail with everything that happened, you know, afterwards and, you know, any complications that happened. And I think that's one of those things that I've known. I know that that happens and I know that y'all are held at, you know, a very high standard. And I think that is kind of what pushes me even more to tell our listeners, like, these guys are where you need to be. Yeah. The question I have on when you submit your stuff for your for the board, is mm-hmm. there I think isn't there like specific things that you cannot say, you cannot promote? For example, I know you can't say board certified plastic surgeon until you even on Instagram, even in a, a comment, like it could not be anywhere on the internet that you're board certified. Oh, yeah. That's huge. That's huge. One of the changes that they've made. So the what people wanted to be able to say, and now they can, is board eligible. So when you are sitting for your boards for plastic surgery, it's like a two-year process, like a year and a half, two years. Like you take a written exam and that's stressful, but that's like the least of your worries. The oral examination is the one that is like the kicker. And so you basically have to take all of your cases from an eight-month period and submit them to the boards. And then you have these like super rigorous oral examinations, like still have PTSD every time I touch down in Phoenix because of our oral exam. And one of the things that they look at, once again, is sort of all the advertising that you've been doing. Now, when I sat for my boards and when I was collecting my cases, you could not use the term board eligible. And so, you know, it was really hard to explain to patients, okay, yes, I'm not board certified, but I'm in the middle of this process 
and it doesn't delegitimize, you know, where I'm at in my career. Now I believe that they become a little bit more lenient and they do let you use the term board eligible, which I think is fair. You know, patients should know that you're in the process of it, but it's not an overnight thing. You don't just sit for a test one day and then have it be done. And the American Board of Plastic Surgery wants the process that we go through to be distinguished from other surgical specialties because they want to be able to say when somebody is board certified, like that means something and they went through this rigorous process. So, and we know it's very rigorous, you guys. Yeah, definitely (laughs) to that. Okay. So before I let you go, Dr. Megan, if it was your mom or your sister or your daughter about your best friend about to have surgery, what's one tip of advice you would give them, you know, while they're on this journey to finding their plastic surgeon, maybe they're waiting for surgery, maybe they don't know if they want to have surgery, what's just something that you would encourage them to do? I think the most important thing is, I mean, two things, do it for yourself, and find the right person. In terms of your surgeon, there is sort of this like, inexplainable bond that I think that you really need to have with your surgeon where you trust them. You trust them. You trust their judgment. You trust their aesthetic. You trust that they're going to take care of you after surgery if like, God forbid, something were to happen. And you know, you trust their team because it's not just the surgeon. It's everybody else. It's all the people in the office that are going to be taking care of you. They're going to be answering the phones if something happens. If you need to get a hold of somebody, it's your anesthesia provider. So I think even if it means having a couple of different consultations, like it's just that level of comfort that you need to have with them, I think is imperative. Because I mean, especially as females, like we're smart, like you get these little kind of, you know, seeds of doubt or feelings, you know, where something just doesn't feel right, you maybe feel like you were shuffled through too fast, or, you know, the surgeon, you said something and the surgeon kind of snapped back at you and didn't listen to what you were saying. I mean, that's a huge thing. And definitely, it's just not the right fit. And that's okay. That's totally fine. So, So those would be the two biggest pieces of advice. Okay. I 100% agree with you. I have a previous episode where I talk about, you know, please check in with yourself before you go into any procedures and make sure that you're doing it for yourself and not for anybody else. Absolutely very important. But okay. So before we, before we take off, where can our listeners find you if they want to come see you, check you out on Instagram? Yeah. So my main social media that I use going to be my Instagram and I'm Dr. Megan MD. I also do some TikTok, although I need to get better about doing it. And my handle is Dr. Megan Dreviscrat, which if you can spell my last name, then you deserve a medal. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, my website is www.drmeganmd.com. So and you know, all the content on my website, just an FYI, all my blogs, they're all written by me. All the content for my website was written by me. I tried to make it as informative as possible. I know patients usually aren't going to like the meat of the website. They kind of just want to look at pictures. And but you know, if there is any questions about any procedures, like uh, there's a lot of good information in there. And I I wanted it. Yeah. All right, you guys. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Megan. And I'll catch you guys next week. Thank you so much for having me. 
I would like to end this episode with a huge thank you to all of our listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe to Big Butts No Lies Podcast and follow us on Instagram at Big Butts No Lies Podcast. If you have a topic you want me to cover, please send it to the DM. If you know anyone on their plastic surgery journey, be sure to recommend them the show. You can also visit us on our website, bigbuttsnolies.com. You'll see the online surgical recovery store. We're adding new items all the time. If there's something you think I need to have on there, send me a DM. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget, new episodes every Monday. I'll see you then.